0: Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now.
1: Reservations are recommended for this show every Sunday morning, beginning right here and now. This is Delicious Conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, KFWB News Talk 980. It is another scrumptious day in Southern California. And we hope you'll stay tuned and do make a reservation on your calendar every Sunday morning to join us for two hours of fabulous food. You'll discover great restaurants this show, some you might not have heard of yet. You'll hear about explorations of culture and food customs and some of the most interesting culinary experts who devote their lives to making food better. This is a gastronomic experience every Sunday morning, and we're sharing audible edibles. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Good morning to you, Lana. Of course... Good
2: morning and happy new year to all.
1: Happy new year to you. Thank you. And a very happy new year to all of our listeners as we embark on our 12th year here on the radio. We hope that you will continue to listen. I thought we would kick off 2012 with thoughts on cooking and making your dishes come alive with flavor. The fundamentals are most important and I have three ideas of what I call basic kitchen wisdom. I always say, first and foremost, that you should taste constantly. You should have some sort of vessel, container, measuring cup of a hodgepodge of silverware, spoons and forks right by your stove so that you can taste that scrumptious pot of chili or that delicious pot of soup that you've put together on the stove before you put it on the table. We'll, we're all responsible for, of course, putting on a, a dish uh, or putting out a dish that you haven't even tasted. So taste as you go and season as you go, and your dishes will come alive with flavor. Shop with the seasons. It's all about seasonality and the beauty of farmer's markets and the proximity of where your food is grown and how fresh it tastes, and that will make your Dishes in 2012 taste better than ever. And let your palate do the talking. Make changes or adjustments to recipes that we share on this show and make them your own. When you read through cookbooks, find your favorite foods and create signature dishes that will always make you a culinary hero. We are all about a celebration for food enthusiasts and this show is going to be one for the books. Stay tuned because we're going to talk about a celebration of meatballs coming up in just a couple of minutes. And you can't really say meatballs without smiling, right? Daniel Holtzman of the meatball shop joins us. Coming up at 830, you'll hear from Sophie Gaillot of Gaillot.com. They are the professional resource online for dining and travel and lifestyle. And we're going to share some new restaurant finds and Tell you where to eat across the country and around the globe in 2012. Coming up at 9 a.m., there is an incredible new two-volume cookbook, it's being called, but I'm going to call it uh, a gastronomic publication like you have never seen before. It is a journey inside culinary obsession, a two-volume cloth covered book called Notes from a Kitchen. And Jeff Scott and Chef Sean Brock, the the southern chef that is making an incredible name for himself in the food world, are going to join us to share this incredible collection. And coming up at 9.30, please join us for a wine conversation for onophiles, for wine lovers, because there's nothing better than a friend that knows a lot about wine, right? Well, Steve Peck is the red winemaker for J. Lore Winery, and he's going to join us to talk about not only his current vintages, but also the sustainability and eco friendly approach that J. Lore takes, and in fact, what you can expect from a lot of the wineries in 2012 as they go very green. So, as the delicious conversation starts here, and now we We believe that food is life, create and savor yours. We're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com. And this is our culinary playground. So let's get to playing. We caught up with Daniel Holtzman of the Meatball Shop a little bit ago, and we wanted to share with you what everybody loves about meatballs. Everyone loves meatballs, of course they do, and they flock to the meatball shop in New York City where lines surround the block for a meatball meal. In New York City's Lower East Side on Stanton Street, in fact, they're not waiting for cupcakes or a famous pizza but for The Meatball Shop, created by Daniel Holtzman and Michael Chernow. It is the wildly popular restaurant featuring all things meatballs, of course. They have published their signature recipes in a new cookbook called The Meatball Shop Cookbook, and we're delighted to have Daniel Holtzman live with us. Hey, Daniel, good morning, and happy Meatball Sunday to you. (laughs)
3: Good morning. Thank you so much for having
1: me. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on uh, your continued success and the newfound shop. In fact, we know you opened a second location just recently, right?
3: We, we opened a second location recently and a third location recently
1: as well. Wow, very cool. Okay, so if we can't get to New York City and line up around the block, uh, let's give some tips and tricks, please, to what you've mastered, and that is the meatball. It's true. Everyone has a love affair with meatballs. I think that it's, one, they're very accessible. Two, they're hard to screw up, you know? Uh, they're flavorful. They're uh, no doubt uh, they can be ethnic-influenced or made in a variety of ways. What is it you guys loved about meatballs?
4: Well,
3: I think everything you've just described really hits the, the nail right on the head. You know, meatballs, everybody has a memory of a meatball. Every culture celebrates meatballs. And so no matter who you are or how old you are or where you're from, you know, meatballs are something that you have a, you know, you can refer to warm and have, have warm memories of. So uh, I think that makes it very easy when you're opening a restaurant people are immediately in a good mood before you even start
1: (laughs) that's very true lana and i loved the quote on the first page of the book on chapter one it says and i quote meatballs are the ultimate cure-all for anything that ails you hangover breakup lack of sleep even a crying baby and it's true Um, give us the uh 101 we want to master meatballs so let's start with ground meat do you have a fat preference of choice uh and or a meat of choice
3: well, at the meatball shop we have almost fifty five different meatballs now that we've we've been working on different recipes for. So they're they're really wide you know, very widely. And generally between thirty and twenty percent fat would be ideal. But depending upon the inherent moistness of the type of meat that you're using, the grind size or fat content varies. So We have a we take a really scientific approach and it's kind of fun to dork out on and we grind all of our meat in house so we can you know for instance some of our our meatballs will will have a a five millimeter grind for a more sinewy or or tougher meat like a goat or something but then maybe we'll add mortadella to it and we want to have the chunks of mortadella visible so we'll grind them at ten millimeter Um, so you know you meatballs are very simple and all the recipes in the book are really easy and quick and fun but if you want to get more specific you can definitely get you know there's some in-depth <laughs> um some in-depth processes
2: uh, dan one of the questions on your website i noticed is regarding the breadcrumbs that you use
3: well you know breadcrumbs are another piece of the puzzle that i think are you know really important and a fun way to differentiate one meatball from another Dried, We. we I, I prefer an Italian-style dried crumbs for just a classic regular meatball, but we use a lot of fresh bread or day-old bread that we'll either grind directly in or, you know, soak in some sort of liquid and then crumble in. Fresh bread definitely offers a light texture to the meatball, which is nice for some denser meat, um, and the dried bread crumbs tend to dry out something that's, you know,
5: inherently moist.
1: So give us an example, if you would, Daniel. What would you use a dry Italian-style seasoned or unseasoned breadcrumb for? What style of meatball?
3: Chicken meatballs, I almost always use dry breadcrumbs. The fresh bread tends to be too soft, and you can't get them round. A beef meatball, I'll almost always use fresh bread, either 100% or some percentage, because I I really enjoy the light, light quality, although... The recipe in the book has ricotta cheese, which gives it a lot of lightness. And so we put dry bread in to kind of stiffen them up a bit.
1: I love all of, all of these meatball tips. These are your pressing meatball questions, by the way. And if you just tuned in, you're late because Daniel Holtzman is here and we are digging deeper into the beauty of meatballs. He is the owner, along with his partner of the meatball shop and the new cookbook has recently released. And we have a recipe excerpted, by the way, from the book on our website at chefjamie.com. Okay. More pressing meatball questions, Daniel. Um, how, to cook, or to cook, or to roast, or to fry—that's the question. <laughs> What's the best way to cook a meatball, in your opinion?
3: We, I, I really think that the best, uh, 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 a great sign of a, you know of a, of a real chef is having an open mind and, and understanding that there's no best way to do anything. So, you know, when we get a new type of meat in, or we're going to try a new meatball, we we will attempt lots of different processes, cooking processes. We'll try frying them, or poaching them, or braising them, or roasting them, and then see what wins. For the most part, in our experience, the most consistent and simplest way to cook a meatball is roasting. It just is easier and takes less preparation. And, you know, there's no oil to dispose of and a lot, a
5: lot less mess.
1: I think it's a very health driven approach to a meatball too because the traditional Italian meatball that a great Italian grandmother made was in at least a quarter inch or more even a half inch of oil in a large round rondeau and there was always the challenge of making sure that the bottom of the meatball didn't get a flat you know flat bottom a flat area per se but when you roast you can roast on a cookie sheet i roast mine on a silpat mat and you do allow the opportunity to strain the oil from it. How do you guys roast yours? On big cookie sheets?
3: We have big sheet pans that so we lay down parchment paper, um, mostly for the use of the, of the dishwashers. <laughs> and we, we roast the meatballs, usually on a higher temperature. Um, and, and that's it. And, and then we'll just kind of lift them off. And any fat that's strained out will be left behind.
1: When it comes to sauce, Daniel, how much sauce does a meatball need? Every meatball takes one ounce
3: of sauce for the most part, although obviously if you like great big balls, you'll need a little bit more sauce to make it palatable.
1: And then give us the inside scoop on scooping. What's the optimal size for a meatball? And when you make yours, is it golf ball or softball?
3: We should great the golf ball, guys, Um, absolutely. About one and a half inches for us. We find that to be the perfect size. I've definitely had some enormous uh, meatballs or some tiny little meatballs that are very delicious. But you know, when it comes to roasting, we roast a, a couple. Now our so we, uh, we, we are up to six thousand meatballs a day. So wait, how many um,
4: did
1: you
3: say? We are up to six thousand meatballs a day. So we're definitely. That's a little bit of
1: experience at this point. That's incredible and fabulous, and we're glad that you're sharing your experience. We hope you'll stay with us. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dish on the recipes. The classic beef meatball, the number one most served meatball at the meatball shop, and all the other flavors like a spicy pork ball and a jambalaya ball and a Mediterranean lamb ball. buffalo. Chicken ball? Oh, buffalo chicken ball for sure. And a chili cheese bowl? Bring it on. Oh, my gosh. Right after the break, we're taking you directly to the meatball shop in New York City through their new cookbook, Daniel Holtzman, live with us. There's more on meatballs right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Fire up your meat grinder. We're making you a master of meatballs. The Meatball Shop Cookbook has recently released. Daniel Holtzman, along with his business partner and fellow meatball lover, Michael Chernow, have published the book of the same name as their New York City dining destination, a crowd-pleasing cookbook because, as Lana just said, there is a meatball for everyone. Fire up your meat grinder and let's get to cooking. Daniel, tell us about the classic beef meatball. This is your number one topic. top seller right
3: this is our number one top seller at the shop and interestingly enough it was the recipe that took the longest for us Mm. to uh, to come up with we originally put the recipes together and had some friends over and some investors over to try and you know uh, um, raise some awareness for the restaurant that we were going to be opening and everybody complained that the beef balls didn't have a beefy enough flavor which was mind- baffling to us because we started to look at it and pork or chicken it's very easy for me to describe those the flavor profile of chicken I can kind of kind of put it in words but for some reason beef is this elusive flavor that I don't know how to describe and we were thinking you know it's just all we're putting in here is beef how come how can they not be beefy enough and um, you know we started working on it and that's when we decided we were going to braise the beef balls are the only meatballs at the restaurant that we actually cook in tomato sauce after they come out of the oven, um, and we also added some uh, ricotta cheese, and we try and get a little bit of extra kind of dark color when we're roasting them. And those three pieces of the puzzle help them help people to kind of I guess associate them more with a beefy flavor.
1: I make my meatballs similar to yours, in fact, in a tomato sauce, braising them, because I think they're extra juicy that way. I like the idea of roasting them first to get a crisp crust and lock in the flavor. I use fennel as well in the form of a fennel seed. But ricotta cheese, nowhere near my recipe. There's a cup of ricotta cheese to every two pounds of lean ground beef Mm, in Daniel and Michael's recipe. Doesn't it? Wow. Absolutely. I can't wait to taste them. And the recipe is just really simple and straightforward breadcrumbs and parsley and oregano like you would expect in a classic tomato sauce. Do you pile them in a hoagie roll, serve them in a bowl? What's your favorite way?
3: Well, I will say that I most often eat the beef meatballs on a classic meatball hero. So, you know, Mm. meatball parmesan, Mm. mozzarella cheese, classic tomato sauce, parmesan cheese over the top and on a a hoagie roll toasted is my, my favorite way. But at the restaurant, it's all about customizability. So we enjoy letting the kind of customer take the steering wheel and be the chef for the for the meal for the dining you know experience. And we just say you can have them on a on a slider bun, on a on a on a brioche uh, hamburger bun. We, mm. You can have it on here. You can have them by himself over risotto or pasta. So you nice. know, I think there's one of the best parts about a meatball is that it just. There's so much variety that you can, and and so much fun you can have with
1: it. I think Lana's bidding for the brioche for sure, right? (laughs) Most definitely. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the buffalo chicken balls. Perfect for football season. Throw a party, gather a crowd, and make these mini buffalo chicken balls from the meatball shop. I love this. The idea of making, you know, your favorite all-American pastime. I mean, great football and fabulous food. There's nothing better than a buffalo wing in the form of a meatball.
3: I could not agree more with you. These meatballs, they kind of started as a joke around the shop because we had, we had a bottle of Frank's Red Hot bouncing about. And we said, oh, we'll make buffalo chicken wing meatballs. And we ground some celery and put some butter in there and all the kind of classic flavors that you put into a, a, would would make for a, a chicken wing. And they were so delicious. We put them on the menu. And they were, they were just immediately the most popular, and people asked for them all the time, and people asked if we would put them on the menu permanently. But, you know, uh, this was one of the greatest successes of the meatball shop so far.
1: Daniel, enlighten us, if you would, please, to, I happen to love this fighting Irish ball. Well, it's really fighting Irish. The idea of corned beef and diced green cabbage to combine with whole grain mustard in the form of a meatball. So cool.
3: We opened uh, the first shop on February 9th of 2010 and soon after my father's birthday, St. Patrick's Day, and he actually lives in Los Angeles, so if you're listening in, thank you Father for giving us some inspiration here. Oh, nice. We, <laughs> we um we started with these St. Patty's meatballs and they were a big hit and, you know, later in the year we wanted to bring them back and my partner says, well, you can't call them St. Patrick's Day Meatballs in, you know, July. So we, we, we changed the name to the Fighting Irish and they were just kind of all the stereotypical flavors that we associate with a, with a, you know, other than the not green green clovers and purple hearts, mm-hmm. um, with the, uh, with, with, with Ireland if you're, you know, kind of a dilettante. And that's part of the fun of the meatball shop is that we enjoy kind of making fun of people who take themselves too seriously and making fun of ourselves and just generally saying there are no rules at the meatball shops so long as you're willing to have a good time and not take anything too seriously.
1: Well, we love the whimsy of it. It definitely adds some fun to family meals. I'm making the steak and bacon cheddar balls first and the Parmesan cream sauce because in the book not only will you find recipes for luscious meatballs of every variety, but you'll find sauces and sides to pair with them. The recently released cookbook from The Meatball Shop, Daniel Holtzman and Michael Chernow. You can fly to New York City and wait in line around the block and as good, pick up the cookbook and... And get to making some meatballs now. Congratulations to you once again, Daniel. We love the book and we're glad to have you. And
3: thank you so much for having us on. It was yeah. really, really special.
1: No, well, thank you. It was a pleasure as well. Quickly becoming one of the most popular food trends. We want to know what kind of meatballs you're making way in live L I V E at chefjamie.com will get you to us. Yes, it will. And it's eating and drinking like you've never done before here and in your radio coming up. The top restaurants for 2012, where to dine this year, the hot spots, the new trends, Sophie Gaillot of Gaillot.com coming up next. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Be right back. welcome back we are sharing restaurant wisdom here have a new favorite restaurant in the u.s or abroad call in we'd love to know triple eight kfwb 980 phone lines are open 888-539-2980 chef jamie gwen along with lana in your radio every sunday morning beginning at 8 a.m for two hours of delicious conversation and fabulous food you'll find a link to guyo.com at chefjamie.com where we'll we're always serving up seconds. As you know, we follow Sophie Gallo's culinary escapades as she travels the globe to bring us the freshest news about the restaurant scene. And we're great fans of Gayo.com. It's G-A-Y-O-T dot com, the website that serves as a very honest and serious and professional resource on dining and travel and lifestyle for an international readership that is in search of the best. So we asked Sophie at the start of this new year to share with us some of her new favorite restaurant finds, to tell us where to eat in 2012, and to share with us her most recent delicious experiences. Sophie, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. We're doing well. We had a delicious experience recently at Hatfields, and we can't wait to dish with you about it. And, in fact, heard through the grapevine that they're opening a little bakery, too, so that we can uh, fall in love with Hatfields just a little bit more. One of the top restaurants this year, but there are many more, right?
4: Yes, yes, there are many more. Um, One of the many more is Alain Giraud, who finally opened his restaurant. He's had some um, delay on the opening in Pacific Palisades. So mm-hmm. if you had his food at the last place he was, which was, and he said it's a completely, uh, 360 degree turn to what he was doing, it's, he's doing a full fledged restaurant. I walked in, the place looks very, uh, plain. So I say, hello, Alain, how are you? Your bistro looks good. He says, Sophie, this is not a bistro, it's a restaurant. Yes, Alain Giraud is right. It's a restaurant. Hmm. Very, um, it's almost fine dining food, but in a very casual ambiance. So that makes it easy to, um, go back.
1: Which is nice, because it's a neighborhood area. Pacific Palisades is very much a family-oriented community. And for those that don't know, Alain Giraud dates back to the decade that he was the executive chef at Citrus Restaurant, Mm -hmm. where everyone fell in love with him. And as you said, he was supposed to open back, uh, like, in in May, and then it was put off to October. And it's nice to see that he's open. It's a combination restaurant and bakery, Sophie, yes?
4: Yes, yes, yes. Bakery... um you, they're making croissants, pain au chocolat, pain au raisin. So if you want more than six, you have to order them like the day before or before because the lines are so big, everything is gone by 9 a.m. in the morning. So they, they made a rule. You want more than six, order otherwise. Because There's- otherwise nobody can get anything.
1: There's a cap on French pastry? I love it. That's brilliant. You know, it's hard to find a very good croissant here. I was out with some friends last night, in fact, and a friend's wife is French, and she asked me, having recently moved here, where can I get a croissant, Jamie? I said, Mm -hmm. we have to go to Vegas to the bakery in the Bellagio. That's the last place I remember (laughs) the best croissant. So we'll go line up at Alain Jereau's. That's a good find. It's called Maison
2: Giro, and his I. food has always been divine. Yes,
1: yeah, it has. It, it was very
2: mm-hmm. good. I and
1: agree. Then, and then if you talk about croissant, there's Milo and Olive that
4: open in Santa Monica on uh, Wilshire up by 28th Street, which is the uh, owner of Huckleberry uh, and Rusty Canyon. Mm-hmm. And so they have also, you know, we know uh, uh, Zoe, she's a very good pastry chef. She makes those yes. pastries that are they're made in... in, in in the restaurant, but you really feel like you would have done them at home. Yes, they're... So there's a bakery and food. all these goods and all day long. And if I had the croissant the other day, the pain au chocolat, they're, they're really good.
1: You know, that's really up Lana's alley, Sophie, because it's comfort food pastries mm. that sort of bring you back in a way. She uses lots of fresh fruit. She makes beautiful pie dough. I happen to love uh, Zoe's... Pastries, and her husband is Josh, and they opened Milo and Olive, as you said. And the rave reviews about Milo and Olive really go back to their pastry side and strength, because the pizza crust is supposed to be fabulous. Did you have pizza?
4: Yeah, I had pizza. Actually, the restaurant is all about pizza, and they're they're of course made when you order, and it takes about twenty minutes to get it to your table. So. You're not going to wait 20 minutes doing nothing. They have small dishes before that, like chicken meatballs, delicious, uh, ceviche branzino, Mm. done uh, Tahitian style with that taste. So it's not the regular uh, one we have here. So they have, and salads and grilled vegetables. So it's, and it's a very small restaurant, 25 seats Mm. and no reservation. So you have no choice. You have to wait.
1: Another intimate spot, and we'll wait in line for good food, Sophie. Uh, they're not waiting in line, but definitely making reservations at the new W. Puck at the Hotel Bel Air, we know, Sophie. And who doesn't love Puck? And who doesn't love the Bel Air? We've seen the restaurant. Uh, the architecture is beautiful, and it is Wolfgang's modern California, European sort of Mediterranean influence.
4: Yes, Um it's uh they've enlarged the patio at the hotel, so you, sincerely the weather is so nice as we can we've had for the past two weeks. We know that uh, there's much more room to be outside, so it's probably where you get the better is outside. So it's a, it looks very different from what it was before, and the cuisine is you know pucks and that, a delicious steak and uh, and they they're still working on the menu to make it, you know, the the best they can. And mm-hmm. it will be the best they can, but it's a, it's a very nice spot and very quiet. You drive up the canyon and you're, mm. like, somewhere in a uh, Sleeping Beauty um, uh, castle.
1: <laughs> I, we love the Bel Air, always have. I mean, mm-hmm. Lana, you love mm-hmm. the Bel Air with the swans and uh, that romantic feel. And oh, it's
2: one of the most beautiful spots in L.A.
1: I agree. And I never met a Wolfgang Puck restaurant that I didn't like, so... No, no. Uh, he's, he's still the best. He always will be, Sophie. There's another gentleman who, in fact, I know from years past and in professional kitchens that's making a name for himself somewhat quietly. Eric Greenspan is one of the greatest talents in LA and he was the chef at Patina when I worked for Joachim a long time oh. ago. Uh, the foundry on Melrose is his as well. An incredible talent and he loves comfort food too. So his, his food is a good mix and he has a, a new opening, right?
4: Yes, a new opening on the rooftop on Wilshire um, corner of Crescent Heights and Wilshire, and uh, you're talking about being, con- you know, very at ease and very comfortable. This is it's on by the pool, so you have a you're on floor I think ten or something. There's nothing blocking the view, so you got a 360 degree view of, of LA, and and there there it's amazing. And you're not that close to the mountain, so you you get a better view, you get a larger view, mm-hmm. and his food. Um, I, I did a video with him. With the food is being shown on the video. Some people have seen that video, and just with watching the video, they said that that place is going to be great. It's hmm. a mixed of it's LA food. It's a mix of fusion, California, uh, different stuff, and it is so good. And it's it's not fine dining, but for the level of what he's doing, there's nothing you should change. It's just perfect. Yeah, and and outdoors, so they don't head there the day rains, but it's it's just a perfect early spot.
1: Rain in Southern California, Sophie? No, just two days a year. Don't worry. It's, it's the Hotel Wilshire, right? And on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A., a very boutique uh, hotel. And the roof on Wilshire is Eric Greenspan's new restaurant. And as Sophie, you said, really fun food, a great view. We can't wait to go. Yeah, um, and drinks, you were
4: mentioning on the, on the previous restaurant you were talking about, about drinks also, they have very they have a very nice uh, cocktail program.
1: How very nice. Good. Speaking of um, innovation and fun food, uh, we are fans of Ryan Carson, who was at the helm of Anki, which is the On mm-hmm. An family, and has moved on now. He's left his sous chef at Anki in charge, and he <gasps> is uh, now running Teato, right? The
4: uh, sort no, of. No, he's running, is no? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes. He's not running he, he He works with them, and he does pop up. Molecular dinners at Teatro.
1: Ah, okay. So he's doing mm. pop up now. And yes. for the pop up concept, you need a location and some dates and people to flock to you. And with his molecular talent, this is one of those young, budding chefs who wants to create uh, guar gum mixtures to make pop rocks out of foie gras. Yeah. And he does it beautifully. He really does. His food yeah, it does. It does.
4: It does. It-
1: is incredible.
4: And um, I had one of his dinners recently, and they're in the kitchen. There's a gorgeous kitchen there at Teatro, and they're in the kitchen. There's a whole team with the, those guys are, are really working, paying attention to every detail, and they're putting a lot of effort, but in a very uh, frankly amicable uh, ambiance. And it just shows on in the food. The food is very elegant, mm-hmm. very smart, very thoughtful, but very approachable, and it's it's a uh, it's it's very good and it's very interesting because it, it just it's different. So that's that's also one thing. If you're out um, all the time or very often, if you go go to this different places and you get the same food every time, it gets a little boring. This guy Ryan couldn't create.
1: Yes, uh, he he, he is. This. I agree with you. He's an artist and a creator, and mm-hmm. I'm glad to know that he's working with the On family now, sort of on a uh, a pop up. Basis, like you said. So you'll find a new menu, uh, different dinners and the dates, Sophie, for his up and coming pop-up molecular dinners?
4: Yeah, uh, January 18, 19, 25, and 26.
1: Okay, so all mm. this month. Very good. We will watch for him. Uh, before we take a quick break, enlighten us to, uh, the LAX restaurant that's getting a lot of conversation, in fact, because, um, Chef Parisi actually hails from Sicily and they're calling him a master Italian chef
4: yeah um Orazzo Parisi at paparazzi at the Sheraton LA gateway he, i I was you know recommending you go there and, and and you need to go try and I was like su- very surprised that in a corporate chain hotel you know sheraton is it's it's not like an individual restaurant at lX the chef is able to choose whatever produce he wants to use for his menu which is Italian, mm. and so it's only an Italian restaurant. It's not an international food type, but, you know, a brasserie type that you, we find in those locations. So everything comes out of the kitchen. is he, he get organic, fresh, everything, you know, in season. So the food is really good and very interesting. He created a, his own recipe of tuna tartar and just that is worth the trip. Even though you're not going away and then you're not staying at LAX, if you're in the neighborhood, it's worth the drive to go over there
1: for tuna tartar alone that that's an mm-hmm. impressive recommendation sophie again at the sheridan on century boulevard strangely located i mean literally on the entrance into lax the restaurant is called paparazzi and as sophie said he's really getting uh lots of rave reviews so sophie we'll take a quick break and when we come back we want to talk a little bit more global uh but kick off first with san francisco uh seattle and your new top spot in new york too. So we'll continue our restaurant conversation here for food enthusiasts, inspiring you to find new fabulous food finds in 2012 with Sophie Gaillot of Gaillot.com, the leading source for reviews for restaurants, dining, travel, and more. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, you're listening to KFWB News Talk 980. You have good taste.
0: I'm Russ Spears with it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. A... Thank you. Bon Au revoir. Day. Merci. A bientot. A bien oh, yeah. When we come back, the delicious conversation continues. So don't touch that dial. There's more fabulous food in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, KFWB News Talk
2: 980.
0: The following program is brought to you by Tastebud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now.
1: The most passionate food and wine lovers live here. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. You've tuned into food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, KFWB News Talk 980. This is food conversation that fits your life and an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment every Sunday right here on KFWB News Talk 980. We're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, making you a culinary genius. If you're looking for recipes that are quick and easy and fun, then you're definitely in the right place. We hope you'll tune in every Sunday to discover great restaurants, learn about the politics of consumption, explore the cultures through their food and customs, and find some of the most interesting gastronomic experts that devote their lives to all of those things that make up this incredible world of food. This hour, coming up, we have some incredibly insightful conversations. Stay tuned in just a moment. You'll hear from Jeff Scott and Chef Sean Brock, who have created a two-volume, incredibly impressive, beautifully designed journey of a book or two inside culinary obsession and then coming up at 9:30, stay tuned because steve peck the red wine maker for Jaylor lore vineyards and wines who has what they say is one of the most gifted palates, is going to share his passion for viticulture onophiles wine lovers rejoice we're going to talk about their commitment to sustainability and ecology as well and how vineyards and wineries more specifically are going green in 2012 so the delicious conversation continues right here and right now informative entertaining and delicious culinary information abounds There is this incredibly beautiful designed, photographed, and presented piece that just released. It is a piece of art in two volumes, and I'm calling it an all-access pass into the minds and hearts and talents of ten great American chefs. Lana found a two-volume book called Notes from a Kitchen that was being released before uh, it even came out and uh, said that we must have these gentlemen on the radio notes from a kitchen highlights chefs that place their culinary passion before almost everything else in their lives this is what uh food lovers are calling a very revolutionary cookbook and it is Inside the minds of culinary obsession. Jeff Scott is uh, the author and the creator, and he has an incredible background. In fact, having created many extraordinary publications of uh, history, in fact, just finishing a 10 year uh, book on elvis sean brock is what they're calling the greatest talent out of the south in today's culinary world and both of us join us to share this two-volume cookbook uh, cloth bound called notes from a kitchen and gentlemen it's delight delightful to have you i'm very very excited to talk with you both welcome thanks jamie <laughs> yes Thank chef are you there I'm here. Can you hear me? We can, and and we're glad to have you live from the South. And, Jeff, give us an idea, Jeff, on, on um, why you would create a book about famous chefs rather than printing their recipes. Well, I mean,
5: it's funny because the idea behind this is really not to focus on the fact that these are famous chefs because I think when you start to focus on celebrity, you start to focus on what you're seeing sort of on the surface, you know, media coverage of really, really talented people. If you focus too much on the celebrity aspect, you miss the idea that these are just people doing their jobs. I mean, they're passionate, they're obsessive. I mean, to a great extent, this is really a book about just me hanging out and documenting the the creative lives of my friends. So my friends happen to be some of the greatest chefs in the world. So, but it's more about who they are as people, what they wake up thinking about, what they write down in their notebooks, you know, what goes through their mind before they even start to think about how to create a dish. What do they do during their day? Who do they meet? Who do they talk to? And just what is their daily routine of creating this, you know, culinary masterpiece that people end up looking at? But it's really sort of the idea of it is to strip apart the celebrity And just hang out with my friends and document, you know, tape recorders, film cameras, everything I can to just capture their daily life in, you know, really honest, you know, kind of like humble detail.
1: I think the photographs capture the lives of all of these chefs so explicitly because, you know, you can walk past an open kitchen on your way to the restroom when you're dining at, you know, one of the top 10 restaurants in the world, uh, but you don't really get a feel until you get inside to see the movement and the speed and the efficiency. And I think the photographs very much depict that.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I've been really, you know, really fortunate because I'm hanging out with Sean, you know, at McCready's or Husk, or hanging out with Johnny Zuni over in his pastry kitchen and JG, and or with George at Aldea, and you know, Zach Palacio at Fatty i I'm hanging out with the best in the world. So their teams, their crews around them are really skilled. Everyone's working in unison. Everyone's—it's not a lot of ego. It's everything's flowing. It's a ballet. It's really like you're a part of. You're watching a a really finely tuned performance where everybody has a part. Everybody's a part of a whole. And everybody's working in sync. So my job really was just kind of to be like a, a line cook with a camera, where I was able to be really put into very close proximity and flow with the chefs and learn the language in the kitchen and and just kind of give the audience a sense of the kinetic energy, the incredible passion and, and synchronicity that goes on. Um, and so much of it is because there's so much preparation during the day and before during the day, there's preparation, you know, months before out in the farm and it's hanging out with the farmers and it's going from The plate, you know, back through all the way back to the farm. But the main thing with being in the kitchen is I really wanted to create a book that would create enough pages, enough slow momentum where you could go page after page and you're just immersed within the energy that's happening during service. You're really seeing the entire process happening in the kitchen that's building these beautiful plates all the way to where you have Sean with a pair of tweezers just beautifully, you know, Mm -hmm. placing these elements in this in this motif of like a Matisse or a Picasso painting so that your food is going to be delivered in a way that's really going to excite you by the time it gets in front of you. But it's really to let the viewer in on kind of the, the process, the creative process that goes on with the entire team, and really the purveyors and the farmers that these um, chefs work with. And they the idea that it's not just them, it's really this group of people around them that are so passionate about what they do, and it's all this combined passion being focused on to the end, end product, which is just, that's why it tastes so good. It's not about celebrity, it's about human beings just putting their lives on the line every day, working their butts off to create something really beautiful
1: for you. Well, that, that's what Sean does. Chef, you in the forward, write that, that you believe that this is the book that will change the way, I quote, we perceive the idea of what a modern cookbook is and can be. What was your first thought? I mean, tell us about um, how you feel about being documented on, uh, you know, a hundred or so pages of a uh, volume one of Notes from a Kitchen
6: you know, it's all very personal stuff. You know, what Jeff was speaking of and the process it takes to put a dish together and get it into the dining room really sort of starts in those notebooks. And, you know, they're not just recipes in those notebooks. You know, I have stacks and stacks and piles and piles of them that, uh, you know, some of them are just full of whatever falls out of my head. You know, it could be not even related to cooking. Um, so those are things that chefs really don't share with other people. Um, it's almost like a journal, you know, it's almost like a, a diary. So um, to, to have that out there is, you know, a little strange, but I think um, it's important for the public to see how much care uh, goes into uh, us feeding them.
1: I think it's amazing that you can take a culinary journey in the pages of what are coffee table books? These are, are books that you explore, that you read and understand the lives of people from, that take you into the kitchens and the minds of chefs like you, Sean. There's a story that you tell um, about a food writer that ate a dish of yours and cried. Will, will you share the story, please?
6: Yeah, you know, <laughs> it was a dish that um, actually in the book talked about a little bit, um, but it was a dish that I created based on my experiences raising my own um, pigs. And it was a collection of all those lessons learned and all the observations that I, I had during that time. And um, the food writer didn't even know that. Um, There's just something about the dish. That maybe it was unique. I don't know. Maybe she could just see my personality in it. Um, but it was pretty amazing, you know, to move people to, to cry through a bite of food is is a very powerful thing. You know, people um, sometimes forget how powerful uh, eating can be in in that experience at the table. It's certainly the reason I'm a
5: chef. Hmm.
1: And it's the reason... Yes, Jeff. Can I jump in on that a little bit, Jamie? Sure.
6: I
5: think, you know, to take what Sean was saying, I think for me, the interesting thing is just to go to your question of how someone could cry and the experience of making somebody cry eating eating Sean's food. I spent a lot of time with Sean at... um, You know, he took me out to his favorite spots, and one of his spots is in Wadnaw Island, you know, in South Carolina, and it's just, it's this beautiful place where he raises pigs, and and we spent a lot of time just driving around, and the windows were down, and we'd be driving through the middle of nowhere, really, for me, of course, and Sean knows the area well, but, and Sean would be just like, hey, man, do you smell that? And I'm like, what? He's like, smell that? Smell the acorns? He goes, you smell the blueberries? Can you smell that? You smell the pine? And he's, like, really passionate, and he's really emotional about these things that are being... And he's, we go on to, to hang out with the pigs, and he's, like, he's, he's describing the smells, and, and he's describing the food that the, the pigs eat, and that the pigs eat this, the acorns, and they eat the blueberries, and, and, that, and the end user ends up feeling this emotion of beautiful food at that level. So the emotion that Sean has towards the product, towards, towards the care of the ingredient, towards the sourcing of the ingredient, I think what happens is that ends up on the plate. So it's just sort of an organic aspect of who he is as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so then he serves this dish that he's, you know, just doing what he really cares about. But ultimately, people feel that through the food. And that's really the remarkable aspect of this is to cover sort of the hidden hidden ways in which we have these emotional responses to food by just watching how chefs relate to this, you know, the Mm -hmm. process in their own lives.
1: It is a great compliment to you, Sean, that what you know and love can be parlayed into food placed on a plate. I think that is the greatest definition of a passionate chef. Gentlemen, please stay with us. We'll take a quick break. We're talking about 700 pages that reveal the private thoughts and creative actions of the most celebrated chefs of our time. It's called Notes from a Ch- Kit from a Kitchen, rather Notes from a Kitchen. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. Be right back. The delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, along with Lana. We have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. We're sharing the provocative new book called Notes from a Kitchen. Jeff Scott, the creator, Chef Sean Brock, one of the top chefs, in america over the past few years running and noted as such esquire magazine uh james beard and more say that he is creating farm-to-table cuisine in the south like no one else uh charleston chef sean brock with us along with jeff uh chef tell us about the new restaurant that you've recently opened and the inspiration behind it i know uh, all of your food goes uh, back to your roots and when you talk about uh what you call killed lettuce, that's all I want for dinner.
6: (laughs) I was lucky enough to grow up in a very rural part of the South. Uh, So rural, in fact, that there were no restaurants and and hardly even any grocery stores. So what that means or meant was that you grew your own food and you cooked all day and Mm -hmm. uh, you spent all of your time in the kitchen. And so, you know, that certainly uh, was my uh, inspiration uh, for becoming a chef, so I had this very, very deep uh, appreciation and love for Southern food and the culture, and um, I knew that there there weren't restaurants out there that were as dedicated as as uh, I wanted to be to to preach that gospel of of Southern food and and um, all of the great crafts and. Uh, all the uh, craftsmen that are making ham and bourbon and all these wonderful things that are just world class products. I, I was, I was, had the struggle, you know, I couldn't, there weren't restaurants out there that were, that were as, um, focused as, as I thought they should be to, to showcase the products of the South and the, the history of Southern food and its culture. And so we decided to open a restaurant where, you know, people who have never been to the South, uh, could sit down and truly experience the current state of southern food. So we came up with this crazy idea. Um, we said if you're really gonna taste the South, then we have to everything has to be from the South. So we're not allowed to buy anything that's not produced in the South, which includes flour and salt and sugar and vinegar and all these things that we take for granted every day that are in our pantry.
1: Oh, the basic um, staples, chef. We talk about when you look for honey in a supermarket, you need to make sure that it was actually produced in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's,
6: it's, it's crazy once you start looking uh, at all the things that you take for granted. And, yes, uh, right away I realized uh, how much I didn't know about cooking. I mean, who, who you know? So now we're making our own salt. We're making our own vinegars. Uh, we our project this year is to make our own sugar, um, and so we're teaching ourselves these basics that sometimes get overlooked that uh, all chefs should know how to do. I mean, every chef should be making his own vinegar, at least. You know, those are some very, very important things. Um, We have some really exciting projects this year. We're taking the idea of of soy sauce and what that is um, and how important that is to flavor a dish. Obviously, we can't use soy sauce, so we're making it out of um, uh, our native heirloom beans and our grains. And um, we're doing lots of interesting things with our native Carolina gold rice, uh, m- making vinegars and, and things. So it's, it's been quite the adventure uh, and, and, and the journey, and, and it's uh, it taught me so much about cooking, it's, it's ridiculous.
1: It's, it's an incredible philosophy to consider that Carolina gold rice, which I will travel to the south to bring back here, Chef? because we just can't get it that accessibly. Although with the beauty of the internet, you can get anything worldwide now. But the fact that you're taking the virtues of what you have on your terroir and the ground and the soil of where you were born and raised and you're exploring it to a whole new level while still bring it, bringing it back to home. It, it's that full-circle philosophy of cooking uh, that I think is just incredible. Um, what is your favorite new ingredient for 2012? What should we look for on your plates? We know you're big on bacon. We love that about you because you're a pig lover for sure.
6: My new favorite ingredient um, is is one that we can only use at McCready's because it's from Spain, um, but it's phytoplankton. And uh, we've just been uh, exploring the possibilities of phytoplankton. It's so delicious. It tastes like um, really, really high-quality seaweed. Um, It's quite expensive, um, but it really just adds this this deep layer of flavor into uh, seafood dishes. That's just really, really fantastic.
1: Phytoplankton. If we can get our hands on some seaweed at our uh, favorite fishmonger here, what would you suggest we do with it? What's the starting point for cooking with seaweed?
6: I think um, it just needs a little bit of acid, a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of salt, and uh, treat it like it's a green. You know, treat it like it's a a lettuce or something. Um, that's, That's my favorite way to do it.
1: I love that idea. Uh, Jeff, of all the chefs in the books, it was very hard to choose uh, a few, of course, second to Sean, that we could highlight uh, for their incredible talents. And we've had Johnny Iozini on the show before. He is the pastry chef for Jean Georges and based in New York City. His experiences, his life is very much expressed in the way of his desserts. Tell us what it was like to spend time in his kitchen.
5: I mean, I think again with, with, it goes back to this idea of just looking at these really talented people as, as artists, but really just looking at who they are as, as emotional people and as explorers who are looking to like find out how they can deliver a, a flavor, deliver a, a combination and deliver an emotional moment to you in a unique way. I mean, Sean and I are actually very fortunate that, uh, Johnny could, um, Johnny prepared a 16 course Dessert tasting for us a few days before he left the restaurant, left Jean Georges, and um, it was really a celebration. John and I just kept looking at each other, just kind of freaking out. Wow. Uh, one, one beautiful modern art piece after another just kept coming, and, and it was really like it was really just extraordinary to see the talent that was laid on the plate and then the, the, the flavors and the textures that came together. But for me, my first experience with Johnny was at his house, and I mean, I went out and hung out with him in Brooklyn at his loft and I I, I just met him and I I guess I met him with George Mendez a few days earlier but at his home he was was punching in his punching bag and... um,
1: He's a boxer, yes. Yeah, well he
5: was just relieving tension you know, Uh he's he's just working so hard chefs work so darn hard and they have, you know, they need a way to release that energy so... My experience with Johnny was just this emotional one first, and then we spent the day in his, he has been a mixologist as well as a pastry chef, and we spent the day making drinks in his in his, in his his loft, and, and then we went from there to, to JG, and I really saw him work with his crew downstairs in his prep kitchen, and the relationship he has with the cooks that work with him is really beautiful, and he really, when he says that he wants to share and he wants to communicate his ideas to the next generation, you know, he's really sincere, and I mean, he, that's, it's one thing to hear a chef say that, but I get a chance to spend you know, hundreds of hours with these chefs, and I get to see if they're really saying, you know, living it out. And in Sean's case, he is, of course, and George Mendez and, and Johnny too. It's he really is. He has an open ear towards um, towards listening to the, the cooks. Want to learn? They're hungry to learn, and Johnny's mm-hmm. anxious to teach. And then from watching him prep all day downstairs, and then watching him, you know, ex-bite, you know, put the dishes out there to the to the diners, and watching the the, the specificity by which he focuses on you know creating each flavor and each create creating the dishes structure so that they're little
1: pretty amazing The
5: people are going to put into their it's just the extraordinary mm-hmm. journey from the emotional human being to the final result is um it's just something i really hadn't seen documented before in a cookbook i hadn't seen the human factor really really focused on all the way from the mind to to the heart to to the plate you know well
1: jeff you took us there and we thank you because this is an incredible I think uh, focus on who and what chefs are, their obsessions, their dedications, the craft. This is where food is going. And if you are a food enthusiast, if you have a passion for gastronomic experiences, well, they have been documented in the top 10 chefs in America, in two cloth-bound books called Notes from a Kitchen, created by Jeff Scott, known for his wildly innovative artworks, with Chef Sean Brock highlighting the first hundred pages or so as he brings the most incredible food ever to the South. We honor both of you and congratulate you. It is a a provocative two-volume book that we're proud to have and to have shared. And as a professional chef by trade, I will tell you, I think this is... An incredible dedication to the work of chefs and the art that goes into uh, the talent uh, every day in restaurants across America. So we congratulate and thank you both.
5: Thanks, Jamie. Thank you.
1: Yeah, a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is private access into the world of chefs. It's very cool. Great find, Lana. Love that. By the way, the books are available exclusively at notesfromakitchen.com or amazon.com. When we come back, wine lovers rejoice. We're talking about the virtues of red wine and how you can go green in your wine choices today. Red winemaker Steve Peck of J. Laura Winery just after the break. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. This is the cork report portion of the show. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, in your radio. If you have a bottle of red wine laying down that you think might need to be open and enjoyed, or if you have a cellar somewhere, whether it's just a rack of red wine or the bottom of your coat closet, well, then that makes you an onophile, a wine lover. And you can perfect your palate through the beauty of tasting and experiencing the wines that you love. Phone lines are open if you'd like to weigh in on your favorite bottle or if you're looking for one to start collecting or gifting, maybe, 888 539 Two nine eight zero toll free 888-539-2980. Steve Peck joins us. He is the red winemaker for J. lore Vineyards and Wines, and he combines a very gifted palate with a passion for viticulture and a comprehensive technical knowledge of winemaking practices. Uh, More than three decades ago, Jerry Lohr started uh, J. Lohr Vineyards and Wines, and still guided by Jerry today, this is a vineyard that is pioneering the very green, sustainable approach to winemaking. They have almost 3,000 acres of vines, 900 acres of cool climate estate vineyards all across Northern California, and we're delighted to talk about the, the Concentrated flavors and the the vibrant tastes of J. uh with steve steve welcome to the show good morning
0: good morning jamie it's wonderful to be here with you
1: Oh nice well lana and i are glad to have you um give us a little bit of background if you would on your love for red winemaking because you've focused on the red grape with J-Lore for many years and as you continue your legacy
0: well if if you're a winemaker in paso robles it's it's kind of a good thing to be a red wine maker because yes. <laughs> there's just so many um, ideal opportunities to make good wine you know whether you're focusing on on the Rhone Reds from the the hillside uh, western portion of the, of the uh, Appalachian or 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 more the uh, northern uh, uh, and, and eastern sections where Cabernet does so well we just have a you know, kind of a really uh, ideal palette of, of uh, growing regions for red grapes in this, in this area.
1: One of the things I love about Jaylor, and I spoke about it over the holidays, is the consistency in your wines. You have a particular flavor profile, um, specifically, you mentioned Cabernet Sauvignon, that tends to be very big and bold and fruit forward. And when Lana and I order a cab or look for a bottle to pair with a meal, we want a lot of bang for our buck. We like a buttery, rich Chardonnays. We share that passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like very food-friendly uh, wines, and I find that big, bold reds pair well with bigger, heartier, rustic, meaty dishes, especially during this winter time. Is it your goal and focus to make that caber- Cabernet so consistent every vintage?
0: Well, I, I always view wine as just sort of, you know, part of the. Part of the plate, part of the meal, you know, um, just just like uh, you know, as a side dish, essentially, uh, you know, that's the way I think of wine, and 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 it's very important to us that the, that the wines are going to be compatible with with the meal. That's really what it's what it's all about. Um, you know, Jay Lohr, back in the early '80s had a partnership with the uh, Hyatt Hotel chain, and and that's when you know Seven Oaks really got uh, Seven Oaks Cabernet, I should say, really got its legs underneath it. And, they worked with Hyatt and the, some of the chefs there and really kind of started the framework for, for the flavor profile of that wine. And then in the, about 10 years ago, there was a big commitment from our winemaking group along with our vineyard management to put in some of the blenders that are so important to bring some additional nuances like Petit Verdot and uh, Malbec, Cabernet Franc as well. So we're really, we really kind of got this symphony you know, uh, uh, let's say backup vocals um, to the Cabernet Sauvignon uh, varietal to kind of bring bring some uh, you know some delicacy and nuance to that wine.
1: The two thousand nine Seven Oaks Cabernet is the last vintage that I've tasted. Have you released since then?
0: Well, no. Uh, although um, we we just started um, uh, barreling down the eleven. Uh, and, and so the 10 has, is, is now uh, at least partly out of barrels. Mm. And uh, I tasted that wine uh, together uh, with uh, our assistant winemaker just a couple of days ago. And we're, we're just really excited about the quality of, of the 2010 vintage that will be available, you know, uh, maybe by springtime uh, in, in the uh, market.
1: Oh, fabulous. We'll look forward to that. I will tell you the 2009 was a, a very dense cab and it was a very dense vintage was it not i mean very deep red purple in color lots of black currant lots of black cherry uh it was a, a year of barrel aging if i've uh, done my homework correctly and just really a, a beautifully rich blend congratulations to you i thought that was just one of the best 2009s I, that i had drank in a long time
0: yeah J. Lore is very committed to barrel aging our wines we always we, we use a uh... Uh, 25% new barrels every year, and, and age that wine for a full year, and don't take any shortcuts on it. It's it's really uh, uh, a, a wonderful wine. Um, our owner Jerry, you know, being he's a South Dakota farm boy, and the way we price our wines is based on you know the cost of the land, what it costs to farm, you know, uh, make the wines in the winery, and 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 you know enough profit to to, to make sense, and and. Uh, And so we're able to bring to the consumer, you know, a great value for that reason.
2: Uh, Steve, I'd love to ask you about your Val de Guier.
0: Val de Guier, yes. Yes,
2: it sounds like a fascinating, wonderful wine.
0: Well, let's just clarify the name. Back in the 70s, there was was quite a bit of wine in, in, in California called Gamay. And, and then with some of the uh, negotiations with the EU and whatnot, they didn't, you know, they didn't like people using the word Gamay or words like champagne and things like that. That's why we use the term sparkling wine now. So in California, we had a choice of, of either naming our, that variety Valdigier, or they also allowed the term Napa Gamay. And so since we grow our, our Valdigier in Monterey, it didn't really make sense to call it. Monterey, Napa, Gamay—you know—would have been excruciatingly, you know, confusing. But it's a grape that's grown in, in the Dijon area, you know, just just south of uh, Burgundy, um, where uh, you know the Beaujolais Nouveau wines are, are, are grown. And uh, we we do a certain amount of carbonic maceration on that wine, anywhere from 25 percent to a third, and then the rest of it is. Uh, fermented in a conventional manner. It's an unoaked wine, and, it, and we uh, bottle and release it just, oh, uh, well, maybe four months after vintage, maybe in February, and uh, it's really fruit-forward, um, a, a wonderful uh, uh, wine for, for people that don't, aren't looking for, a, you know, a heavy, oaky, big red, and uh, I, one, one place I know it's exceedingly popular is the United Kingdom. Um, the you know the, the Brits just just love that style of wine. Um, in California, it tends to work well anywhere where it's you, know, you have quite warm weather.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know it, it you know uh, on a hot summer day, sometimes a, a big cab is is not what's called for. So you can go for that Valdigier as a very refreshing, uh, you know, warm warm climate
1: wine Yeah, steve i call that pool wine i was going to say it could could be
2: jamie's winter pool wine
1: yeah and and it is because it's not too overbearing like a big heavy cab on an 80 degree day but it still offers you the virtue of the red grape the tannins the roundness on the palate the fantasy food pairing so
0: it's also the wine we, we promote for as a thanksgiving wine it sometimes fits where people that like a, a lighter-bodied Zinfandel, hmm. um, you know. Uh, you know, rather than you know, it doesn't really compete with an over-the-top Zinfandel. But for, but for people who like the, the uh, you know sort of the fruit signature of of a good bright brambly Zinfandel, they'll, they'll they, they might be interested in that wine as well.
1: Okay, so mark it down. We're forecasting lots of Val de Valdigier sales in 2012 for J. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's what's fun. You know, you know, white wines have done a really good job of, of really creating. Um, you know, a sense of where this wine goes. What 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 foods go with Riesling or Gewürztraminer? What foods go with, you know, buttery Chardonnay or unoaked Chardonnay? Red wines. I think we've got a ways to go to really help the market, you know, and consumers and chefs and winemakers alike to really understand, you know, you know what these different flavor profiles, these different varietal wines, where, where they best fit, you know, in the menu. And, yes. Uh, and we're always striving to improve ourselves in that area. That's where the Valdigi kind of allows us to create a niche that not a lot of other wineries have a wine uh, mm-hmm. that that satisfies that, you know, that flavor
1: profile. I love that you're breaking all the rules. I believe there are no rules with wine. If you want to grill salmon tonight and open a bottle of Steve Peck, red winemaker for J. Laura's Pinot Noir, well then rejoice in it. Uh, Steve, please stay with us because when we come back, another one of the things that I love about J. Laura, aside from the consistency and the um, very competitive pricing, is the fact that this is a winery and vineyards that are very committed to sustainable wine growing practices. And we're going to talk about the three e's of sustainability and the water conservation that jaylor is being awarded for making a difference on uh in the land really and on the soil for what it is that jaylor produces there's more wine conversation in your radio right after this chef jamie gwen along with Lana, in your radio kfwb news talk 980 We're pouring a glass of red wine from J. Laura Winery with red winemaker Steve Peck and exploring the beauty of J. Laura's commitment to sustainability, to the vintages that you can expect to open and enjoy uh, in uh, months and years to come. Steve Peck is the red winemaker for J. Laura Vineyards and Wines. And we left off talking about the three E's of sustainability. J. Laura's always been very committed to sustainable wine growing practices, Steve. and your, uh, water conservation in fact has been awarded by uh, multiple organizations for uh, what jlor has been able to give back to the environment highlight if you would uh, what you're so committed to in your winemaking practices
0: well Jlor really has been a leader in, the, in in this area of sustainable practices when you manage you know 3,000 acres of, of, of land uh, uh, vineyard land it's it's really important to uh, manage your inputs carefully and And in California, one of the most precious inputs, of course, is water. And, um, we've, uh, you know, we tend to be a very analytical and technical group. Uh, uh, it all sort of stems from Jerry Laura, our owner. And, uh, you know, going back, uh, six or eight years ago, I think in the winery, we used, uh, I don't know, industry average of five, six, seven gallons of water for every gallon of wine that we produced. And, uh, and these days we're down, under three gallons per gallon and uh, um, and it's just it's really more believe it or not it's more of a, 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 a social endeavor uh, of training employees and just getting people to be mindful and thinking about you know how, where, where all that water goes when they're rinsing out a tank or washing down a floor or or washing using water to wash out a barrel um, between the, you know when, when we empty and refill it. Um, that we just, uh, br- you know, bring a lot of attention to that, and our employees have really kind of gotten behind the whole program, and we've really allowed ourselves to be leaders and examples for the rest of the industry.
1: And, and that you have with natural weed and pest management. There's so much that goes into uh, producing a single bottle of wine, yeah, and. Wh-
0: I'm sorry, we adopted, we were one of the uh, first in the pilot program of of sustainable wine growers in California. So we've been certified since 2009 as certified sustainable. And we're very active in the uh, Central Coast Vineyard team that's putting on the Earth Day Food and Wine Show uh, later in April this year, uh, where they bring out some of the very best restaurants in the Central Coast. uh, We'll be present there.
1: It's very, very impressive to know what it takes to get the grapes into the bottle. We experienced crush one year, Steve. And to realize how much goes into the growing of the grape, the testing to determine when it's ready for picking, everything from carrying crates and crates of these grapes to the crusher, and then the amount of time that the wine might age in the barrel like J. Lohr, uh or stay in stainless steel vats and then be uh, bottled and corked and labeled and distributed and then to realize we're looking for the best value, you know, under twenty dollars for a bottle, when you don't even realize how much it takes to bring us that perfect toast, the perfect cheers.
0: Yeah. And it it there's just layer after layer of of of, of quality. And and uh, um you know when, when I started with J. lore over five years ago, I I would. I would ask uh, Jerry, our owner, or, or, uh, or Jeff, our, our director, and, and say, you know, there's, there's two ways I could take on this project. I could do it kind of the, you know, sort of the quick and easy way, or I could do it the harder way that might influence the flavor a little better. And without, without a, a, a exception, we've always chosen the more rigorous and more difficult uh, um, path um, if it meant, you know, better flavors.
1: Well you've you've produced beautiful wines and bold, concentrated flavors with a vibrant sense of place that's what i love about Lore. you know where those wines came from and we will continue to drink your seven oaks cab your cabernet sauvignon from the hilltop vineyard and your fogs reach pinot noir by the way i i believe in pinot paradise steve i yeah. am a pinot noir lover and your pinot noir is one of those that offers the most beautiful complexity of rich fruit and spicy notes and i think it's a beautiful food pairing wine so congratulations to you
0: thank you yeah i'm crazy about pinot noir myself i've been to burgundy a few times and and uh i think we've we've uh, selected some of the very best cooperage for that wine and it mm. really does bring a little bit of spice uh, uh, signature um that that really makes for a delectable finish and a great uh, food food experience
1: well, we should definitely share a glass or a bottle, for that matter, soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure to share the virtues of your red wine, Steve, and we will continue to drink J. Lor.
0: Thank you very much. A Steve. pleasure.
1: Glad to have you. As the delicious conversation continues, Chinese New Year is just around the corner. The year 2012 is the 4,700 and ninth year. It's the year of the dragon. Mm -hmm. And so we thought we would give a quick, masterful technique lesson. If you're planning on making egg drop soup for the Chinese New Year, this is a lesson 101 in egg drop. Lana, I love your idea. And this is a segue from from wine to soup, maybe not the perfect pairing. But as we embark on the holidays that quickly approach with Chinese New Year and Super Bowl and then Valentine's Day, you should continue Continue to listen here because uh, this is where food is delivered directly to your radio. Um, Share, if you would, this idea of uh, a quick cook shortcut. I love it.
2: I want to buy a container of low-sodium chicken broth and heat it up Mm -hmm. and add some ginger and scallions, a little bit of mirin. Um, or you could use dry sherry if you have in the house as well, and um, buy a cooked chicken, cut up some of the chicken uh, and put it into the soup as well. A little touch of uh, sesame oil Mm -hmm. if you want to thicken it a little bit, uh, cornstarch and water, and then you take over the egg part.
1: I think that's fabulous, by the way. That's a shortcut to egg drop soup. And Mm -hmm. while any great Asian cook would tell you that a long, slow cooking process makes for the best broth, we're all busy today. So uh, as I like to say, sometimes you have to fake it, don't make it. And this is a grand shortcut version of egg drop soup. I do have a couple of chef's tips for making the egg drop. Uh, You want to lightly beat your egg so that very few bubbles form. And the goal here is to make long, Thin beautiful strands of the egg in the egg drop soup turn off the heat of the soup the minute you begin pouring in the egg it has been proven by great Asian cooks to produce silkier threads if there's no heat mm-hmm. on the pot you want to begin stirring as soon as you start pouring in the egg and to make the threads you stir rapidly for about a minute in one direction only you will have beautiful egg drop soup that is full of flavor and fabulous and you will be a culinary hero come Chinese New Year mm-hmm. happy Chinese New Year to you yes and Kanghai Fat Choy to you as well. We'll continue to dish on Chinese New Year recipes, uh, Super Bowl creations, chili collections, wings and more, and we're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, so we hope you'll check out the website and continue to tune in every Sunday beginning at 8 a.m. for two hours of delicious conversation and fabulous food. And
2: we hope everyone will write to us about what's your guilty pleasure while you're watching the Super Bowl game.
1: Oh, I love it.
2: We want to know. <laughs> we're going to share it with everyone. Use our
1: email address live, L-I-V-E at chefjamie.com L-I-V-E at chefjamie.com gets you to us. Next Sunday. They join us as Cook's Illustrated editor Jack Bishop joins us with the best recipes over many years of their recipe creation, development, and dedication. And Karen Page and Andrew Donnenberg, everyone loves their traveling food finds. They're going to share a food lover's guide to wine. We're also going to create New Year, New Year resolutions, New Year, New You, with Lisa Lynn, our resident fitness expert. And we'll be in your radio, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, right here on KFWB News Talk 980 next Sunday. Thanks for listening. Until then, I hope you continue to eat well.